0: or uh, small groups, cell groups. They, they're called a lot of things, home fellowship groups. But it's bottom line where a small group of people meet in the home, uh, and they have a, a few moments for social activity, and then there's some, some worship. There's a short Bible study, more worship. And as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the most Book of Acts things that a church can do uh is to have small groups. The Bible said in Acts they went from house to house. And a whole lot of what you read that happened in the book of Acts happened either in someone's home or in the street, out in public, etc. And uh so we're we're going to establish a a consistent care group ministry uh Starting immediately in January, we've handpicked about 40 people uh, to be a part of that. If you are not contacted to come out to a care group uh, one night, what does that mean? You weren't picked, don't get your feelings hurt. Because once we get them up and started and running, then uh, we'll, we'll establish more and more of these care groups. I would actually like to see the day where it could become our Wednesday night service where we would have the whole entire church involved in care groups. And um, so instead of coming to coming here on Wednesday night, we'd go to someone's house and have church on a small group level. That's a ways into the future, so don't anybody panic and go into cardiac arrest over that. But uh, it's one of the most apostolic... Things that the church can do is to go from house to house and have quality, spiritual, word of God moments, God connect moments. Uh, it's one of the most book of Acts things that we can do. And if we're going to become a community driven church, if we want to reach our community, then the concept and the principle of community has to start on the inside before it'll work on the outside and so care groups are going to be small communities made up of uh, 12 to 15 people ultimately that have a very strong chemistry and that continually multiply themselves in other people Uh, we'll be teaching more and more about that next year but tonight i want to explain to you for the next little while the basis of our care groups, what they're going to be about. I want to give you the concept of it, and I hope and pray tonight, pray today, that this resonates with everybody in our church. I want it to resonate with everybody in our church. I want this concept to get in your head, and everybody start helping me think this way. I want to talk to you tonight, and it's a strange title, but I want to give this this title. Care Groups, The Front Porch of Grace. Care Groups, The Front Porch of Grace. And uh, you'll understand in just about two minutes why I'm calling it that. As American culture has evolved into what it is today, if you go to an architect or... a a person that does uh, plans for a house, you want to build a new house, Uh, most of these planners and architects currently design homes intentionally to promote privacy and seclusion, not connection with your neighbors. Okay. Not so long ago, when life was a whole lot simpler and the commute times were virtually non-existent, back then homes were constructed with front porches. So when people took evening walks or afternoon drives, it was commonplace to run into your neighbors sitting on their porch. One thing usually led to another, and before long, you were invited to sit with them and enjoy a casual conversation, and probably, in most cases, a nice cold glass of iced tea. People actually took time for one another and saw value in this spontaneous interaction. Talk time on the porch, on the front porch, was a way of life. I remember as a child... Uh, we lived on America Street downtown and uh, lived in a very small house, and uh, but it had a nice front porch. As a matter of fact, I have a nice scar on my forehead where I ran into one of the brick columns on that porch and I lost drastically, uh, lost that battle. And uh, <clears throat> But I remember many occasions of playing out on the sidewalk and seeing my dad sitting up on that porch in a chair, red back in a chair with his feet propped up on the banister, and I can still remember him hearing him sing, Where could I go? Oh, where could I go? Seeking a refuge for my soul and so on. I remember my older brothers sitting on the porch. I remember how I was forbidden to let the, the screen door slam. You open the screen door, and before you have a chance to close it, you're told not to slam it. I wasn't planning on slamming it, but nonetheless, I was told anyway. But I remember, and to this day, when we sit down at Christmas dinner, or some of my siblings get together, invariably, conversation always goes back to 841 America Street. And they talk about all of our neighbors, the ones that lived across the street, the ones that lived next door, three or four doors down. They had some little kid, something was wrong with her, that lived on the corner of America street down from us. I never have understood it, but they always called her flap flap wings. They still talk about flap flap wings. To this day, that story is 50 years old and they still talk about it. But uh, we talked about the lady that was real mean that lived across the street and the paramedic that lived around the corner, and we knew our neighbors back then. Our house had a front porch, and on many occasions, I remember our neighbors sitting on our porch talking with my mom and dad, and likewise, my mom and dad sitting on theirs. Somebody wrote one time, the American front porch further represented the ideal of community in America, for the front porch existed as a zone between the public and the private, an area that could be shared between the sanctity of the home and the community outside. It was an area where interaction with the community could take place. So I'm talking about our care group ministry becoming the front porch of grace, where that's where we interact with people that are non-members of our church. That's ultimately where care groups are going to go. So tonight I welcome you to the 21st century, retreating from the busyness and intensity of work life. We come home, we put the garage door down and escape. Not outside to the openness of our front porch, but inside to the television set in our living room. And if we go outside, It's to the back porch deck around which we have a privacy fence built. We have shut ourselves in as Americans. Across the board, we have shut ourselves in. The harsh truth is that after a long, hard day and perhaps a very busy commute, a very frustrating commute home through traffic, You don't want to see any more people. I just want to get home and get in my PJs, get a cup of coffee and just sit down and read a book and listen to the radio. Bottom line in American culture, we want to get away from people. The last thing we want to do at the end of the day is to have one more conversation with a nosy neighbor that ask way too many questions and it's too demanding. We don't want to be forced to make any more decisions. We don't want to have to fulfill any more requests. So we shun unplanned, unscheduled interaction by hiding in our homes. Our goal when we get home from work or school is to avoid people. and what they just might potentially want from all of us. We avoid them at all costs, and cost us it does, because the avoidance approach comes with a price tag, especially when you're getting real close to God, and you're feeling convicted because you've never invited your neighbor to church, and the reason you haven't is because you never talked to them, and you don't even know their name. George Gallup said, all of you are familiar with the Gallup poll, George Gallup has said that Americans are among the most lonely people in the world. In the midst of our busy lives where we have overcommitted schedules, we live in congested cities, we feel alone. We drive on overcrowded streets, we go to overcrowded malls, we go to overcrowded Walmarts, we see people on the job. But yet we live in isolation. I'm going to ask everybody to sit up straight and listen. Listen with both ears. How can it be? Most of us are mobbed with people. Lots of them. I know very few people that even here tonight that you go through a whole entire day that you don't run into at least 10 people. And our general posture is we only run into those 10 people because we have to. We work with the idiots. Most of us live around a lot of people, work with a lot of people. We attend events with a lot of people. As one writer wrote, Today more than three-fourths of the American people live in metropolitan areas and more than two-thirds of those live in the suburbs. And many times those suburbs are made up of mammoth-sized subdivisions, some bigger than small towns and we're lonely, and we don't know anybody. Having access to people isn't the issue for most of us, so why are Americans so lonely? We are a culture-craving relationship. In the midst of our crowded existence, many of us are living very lonely lives. We live and work in a sea of humanity, but we end up missing out on the benefits of regular, meaningful relationships. I want to introduce this to Grace tonight with everything in me. God is concerned about this unhealthy reality of loneliness that exists in our culture. Let me share with you the original plan. I'm going to share with you something that... uh, I never have thought about until about two days ago, and it has revolutionized my thinking. And this is what I hope resonates with all of you folks tonight. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you read the creation account, how God planned us, how God planned for us to do life. God had a plan for how human life was to be lived. Everybody on board with me? If you haven't read it in a while, you ought to take a a fresh look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. An amazing reminder of God's endless capacities with very little effort but amazing creativity. God creates the heavens and the earth and everything therein. The breadth, the depth of what God was able to get done And six days is very sobering for any results-oriented type A person. Man, you want to talk about cranking out some stuff. God was getting down on it, man. I say that in all due respect. But I am still mesmerized with how great thou art. But then when you stop and think about it, there's no one like him. So... He can do it. He's God. So in the midst of his huge, outlandish, immeasurable, creative bonanza, a recurring phrase appears. In fact, six times after after God creates something, the text says, and God saw it, that it was good. Six times. It's good. From creation of light to the creation of livestock, the assessment of his efforts is the same. It is good. It pleased him. He is very satisfied. Things are as he intended them to be. Then on the sixth day, humankind comes on the scene. The culmination of God's creativity has finally arrived. God is so pleased by this latest creation that he assesses all his efforts over the previous six days. His appraisal changes with his latest addition of mankind. The things that he has created are no longer just good, but now they are very good. Everybody say very good. God's prize creation has tipped the scale with the addition of humankind God awards himself a five-star rating, if you will. It is very good. I hit it out of the park. Then the unexpected happens. After explaining in more detail his design and intentions for man, God said in Genesis chapter 2 that it is not good that man... Should be alone. I want you to mull over this for a minute. Hey, Chris and Hannah, how y'all doing? They're in left field. My left, your right field. Glad to see y'all tonight. Y'all still love each other? Still real happy? Good. Teach them to sit over there where they stick out like a sore thumb but I want you to get your head around this. Man hasn't sinned yet, and God just absolutely did all this creation stuff that I would to God sometimes I could just understand the whole thing in totality. Let there be light, boom. Stars, sun, moon, blah, blah, blah. Does it all. Creates man, forms him out of the dust of the earth breathes into him the breath of life and he becomes a living soul and the bible said that god communed with man every day in the cool of the day in the garden of paradise and man had not yet sinned and his he has an exclusive relationship with god man is not sharing god with anyone else he has god all to himself And for that matter, God has Adam all to himself. Everything is absolutely, phenomenally perfect. And it was in that environment God said, whoa, 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 time out. Wait, 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 wait. It is not good that man should be alone. I want you to. I'm I'm in the book now. Don't go haywire. Thanks, Brother Bunch, Dave Bunch. But I'm still in the book. We have preached for years that there is a place in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl that is designed for God. We've preached that for years. Me and God make a majority, somebody sang one time. But you stop and think about this scripture and without taking it one ounce out of context, you will also discover that there is a man-shaped part in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl. So as much as God needs man and man needs God, man also needs man. It is not good, God said, that man should be alone. Now, show me in the scripture where this is only limited to marriage. I understand as a result of God's observance of that situation and Adam being alone in paradise. I think I could enjoy paradise alone for a little while anyway. But that's me. But God didn't think so. That sooner or later, the beauty of paradise is going to sour if Adam does not have other humans to share it with. Now, you can be very small-minded and say, Well, it's not good for man to be alone, so he needs to get married. Well, if that's the case, then why did God give them the ability to have kids? You ever thought about it? And then why did God give those kids the ability to have kids? And kids having more kids and just kids, and pretty soon it's kind of like grace, and you have kids running around everywhere. And that's cool. Happy about that. man. God said... It is not good for man to be alone. And at the core of this statement is the importance of our ability as humans to connect well with other humans. The marital relationship is the most profound illustration of that reality. But one man said this. What is striking is that the fall had not yet occurred. There's no sin, no disobedience. Nothing to mar the relationship between God and man. The human being is in a state of perfect intimacy with God. Each word he and God speak to each other is filled with closeness and joy. He walks with God in the garden in the cool of the day. He is known and loved by, or to the core of his being by his omniscient, love-filled creator. Yet the word God uses to describe him is alone. And this alone is not good. Listen to pastor, sometimes in church circles and even in grace, and it's come to my attention recently, it's going on in grace and we've got to do something about it. We've got to build, figuratively speaking, a front porch on this church. I love what the lobby does, but we've got to build a front porch. We've got to get outside with what we've got. Now, y'all sit there and stare at me like you're looking at the Sears catalog or something, but we've got to change what we're doing. What we're doing is working a little bit, but it's not working nearly enough, and this is a very simple fix. It just takes a little bit of commitment, but there's people at Grace that feel lonely, and we have taught them through the years not to expect too much from human relationships and that there is inside every human being a God-shaped void that no other person can feel, and and that is true. But in man's greatest moment of intimacy with God like there's never been before nor since, God said, can I say what I want? Don't take this out of context, but God designed the DNA of humanity, and he, he bottom line said, that you're going to have to interact with people you can see, touch, feel. So apparently God created on the inside of every human being a human-shaped void that even God himself chooses not to feel. There's no substitute. No substitute that you could have in your life will feel your need for human relationship. Not money, not achievement, not busyness, not books. I'm going to go out on a limb. Not even God himself. Even though this man was in a state of sinless perfection, he was alone. And God said, it's not good. When our human shaped void is not filled with appropriate relationship then we live a life alone in isolation and it's not good and it's not good for a reason. I want to share with you at least four things that living alone, that living in a state of loneliness will give you four reasons why it's not good. Everybody needs meaningful relationships. And when we don't have them, we suffer natural consequences, whether you realize it or not. I'm preaching to grace right now. You don't have to get out of yourself. There's things that are happening to you right now, physically, mentally, emotionally, when you live secluded by yourself in your backyard on your deck with your privacy fence built around. first thing that happens to a person that lives alone is they lose perspective when we live in isolation we can easily lose perspective on life and that's because there's no objective voice calling us towards balance I got to drop a pebble in the middle of the pond before I ask this next question I think I may be okay have you ever noticed that the majority of the people that live alone are weird? I had to think about that for a minute. Make sure who's here and who's not here. <laughs> but have you ever thought about that? You know that old, that old woman who got somebody pointing fingers back there? And you're right. I agree. <laughs> I'm kidding. We'll work it out after church. Uh. It's like when I was growing up, you know, that old woman that lived in the house next door or something, always weird, man. She wouldn't say nothing. Just always mean, had a scowl, never happy. Kids never came over. You couldn't even get an old stray dog to go hang out on the porch or nothing. People lose perspective. They lose balance. You lose orientation when you live in a perpetual state of isolation or loneliness lonely people's lows tend to be lower their highs tend to be higher and our point of view becomes clouded with and things tend to seem worse or better than they really are simple decisions can appear bigger than life and decision making can can become more impulsive if we don't have others to point us back to true life orientation you have no one to counter your thoughts and lest we forget, we can lose the perspective that as believers in Christ that we are, we are in a battle. This is what I want you to hear. We can forget that we have a very real enemy and that he plays for keeps. And we can lose sight that our struggle spiritually is not just against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and our, our enemy's most successful strategy is to isolate us so he can destroy us. You never hear of a whole herd of sheep being attacked at one time. If a, if a fox can call one out, he'll attack him alone. So you lose perspective when you shut yourself in. After studying this material for the past several days, I've poured over it for the past several days, I've come to understand even some of our own church people that have no friends outside of your spouse or your immediate family. You don't function with anybody. You know what I'm teaching against here tonight? I'm just really tired. Our church ain't that big, man. We still, all things considered, have a very small church. And we have people that come to church here that don't know anybody. I don't know them. You've been coming here for a year. I don't know anybody. What's up with that, man? I don't understand it. Um, Well, I do. As a result of this Bible study is because in our minds, because of our American culture, we have fenced ourselves in. And we have did it. We did it without realizing it. When you got married, you found that person who became your spouse to be a person that you can kind of feel comfortable around, share a little bit of intimacy with, and get married, and have a few kids, and that's it. Us four and no more, by God. I know churches that take on that mentality. We don't want to grow. We fence ourselves in. And God, and when we're doing this against the voice of God telling you it is not good for you to do that. And if you do it, you'll lose perspective. You'll lose the meaning of life. You'll lose the purpose for why I created you to start with. Do you folks realize here tonight that the whole success of the gospel depends on you connecting with somebody? Go ye into all the world. The second thing that happens when you live alone is a fear of intimacy. I've dealt with this in the past months. i don 't want to get close to people i don 't want people to get close to me i don 't trust people. Somebody asked me several years ago, and it, it kind of took me back and i didn 't know how to answer. It said, How do you and Sister Murphy just take in people all the time and work with them? You love them, you pour yourself into them, and some of them leave and go somewhere else, and some of them leave and don 't go somewhere else and they just leave and you know and, and how do you keep doing that because if you have, I want this to sound judgmental, but if you have the Holy Ghost I have, you're not motivated by how many people you can captivate around you. All I'm doing is just sharing with me what God has done to me. If you like it, fine. If you don't, that's between you and God. But I'm going to spend the rest of my life, to the best of my weird ability, trying to connect myself to people. I, I care about people. I don't always love people. I don't. I don't always like people. But I always care about people. And it should be the DNA of the Holy Ghost. If you have it. And you're allowing it to work on the inside of you. There's there's people here tonight you could bring so much to to the kingdom if you'd get out of your backyard with what you've got with what God has done for you. If you'd open your mouth and just, you don't have to take your Bible and start pounding people in the head with it and quoting scripture and whatever. Just be a friend, man. People are lonely and they've lost perspective. Brother Merrill mentioned a numerous uh, statistics here this past Sunday morning. People don't believe in God anymore and they don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. Why is that? Because the church has built a privacy fence around our experience with God and we don't share it with anybody. I'm sorry, Uh, I I, I forgot I'm supposed to make everybody feel like cotton candy, just a big wad of, (laughs) on the end of a paper stick that gets sticky. When you isolate yourself, you have a fear of intimacy. And not only spiritually speaking, do you not want to be intimate with humans around you, you sure don't want to get intimate with God because when you get intimate with God, boy, something starts grinding on the inside and you get the baptism of the Holy Ghost and it makes you want to stomp your foot and clap your hands and raise your hands and say, "Woo!" and hallelujah to God and I want to teach a Bible study and then you remember, I can't do that. I've got to stay perched on the deck in my backyard with a privacy fence built around it. If you've never had close friendships, then you're going to tend to be more fearful of that kind of a relationship. People who fear intimacy think that if others really get to know them, they're not going to like them. But what we moron Pentecostals think or what we need to start thinking is the reason people won't To get to know us better. It's because there's something attractive on the inside of us. But we think if they find that out, they're not going to like us. But they think if they find that out, they will like us. But we win the battle. Somebody asked me today, straight up out of the clear blue. I went to the eye doctor today and got my one contact. You're half blurry tonight. (laughs) I can see pretty good now. But anyway... I'm paying the lady for the contacts. And she said, do you go to church somewhere? <laughs> okay. I'm not here to talk about church. Now, you don't understand. I've got my little privacy deck in my backyard and a privacy fence built around it. If I want to talk to you about church, and i build a front porch. But I don't do that. That's not how my religion works. I profess to have this huge, profound relationship with God, but I keep it a big, huge secret. Furthermore, if I tell you about my church, you're not going to like it anyway, so there really ain't no point in me telling you about it. So we'd rather stay disconnected than to risk rejection so I'm not going to tell you about who I am because we think you're not going to like it anyway. Am I hitting home with anybody here tonight? God said, God said. Look at your neighbor and say, God said. But God said, it's not good for you to be alone. So he creates people. And when we come out of our spiritual sleepy stupor, we look at these people that are standing around us saying, who are you and what have you got? You've been walking with God and I want to know about that. And we run and hide in a bush. Isolation breeds selfishness. The sum total of a person's life is defined by his or her schedule. His or her agenda, his or her needs, his or her desires, and chances are good that him or her is suffering from a huge dose of selfishness. Over time, a disconnected person becomes so absorbed with themselves That he or she gives in to one of the fatal byproducts of disconnection with people. Selfishness leads to self-centeredness. And when that happens, the rest of your life is lived through a very narrow lens. You can't see the big picture anymore. Your life becomes all about The fourth thing that happens, and this is a true statement. Research has been done on this point. The fourth thing that happens as a result of isolating yourself and living a very lonely, secluded life with just me and mine is you develop very poor health physically. People who live life alone are at much greater risk of sickness and poor health than their connected with people counterparts. Think about that you could save yourself money going to the doctor and buying prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs if you just start associating with people man you wouldn't be so stressed out and tensed up and worried and all I can see is That's those doing over there and they just make me so mad and I've got this doing that to do and I don't have time for anybody if you'd lighten up out of that mindset man you'd start feeling better. Your marriage will get better. Your kids may start loving you again. Who knows? John Ortberg, in his book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, refers to a study on relationships that track the lives Of 7,000 people over nine years. This is what they came up with. 7,000 people over nine years. Researchers found that most isolated people were three times, three times more likely to die than people who had strong, healthy connections with other people. People who had bad health habits. Listen, people who had bad Health habits, including smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, and even alcohol use, but had strong social ties, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. In other words, it's better to eat Twinkies with people than it is to eat broccoli alone hallelujah that's why god said it's not good for man to be alone he liked junk food i can't prove that that's just an idea but according to this research strong connected relationships with people pay huge dividends even toward your health. Clinical psychologist Dr. Henry Cloud refers uh, to two reports that communicate similar findings. Their conclusions affirm that the value of meaningful connection, a person's ability to love and connect with others, lays the foundation for both psychological and physical health. This research illustrates that when we're in a loving relationship, a bonded relationship, we are growing. But when we are isolated, we are slowly dying. So living life without meaningful connection is not good because it's not what God intended for us. When you isolate, it just don't spread the gospel. And that's the point. Does anybody get that? Shake your head whether you do or not and I'll sleep better tonight. (laughs) Isolation tends to bring with it devastating relational sicknesses. But it's also not good because we are created for relationship. Living life alone does not accurately reflect the one whose image we're made to bear. Who wants to be like Jesus tonight? Would you raise your hand? You do? Okay. For all of your lonely people out there. That want to be like Jesus. We're all created in the likeness of our heavenly father. God is a relational being. God said in Genesis one26 let us make man in our image. So the God who desires to have a relationship with all humankind has always Always known, meaningful relationship. So don't miss out on what verse 27 has to say. So God created man in his own image. So just as he exists in meaningful relationships, so are we to exist in this quality of relationship as well. Jesus never isolated himself. The few times he went off alone to pray, people came, got him, and he came out and ministered to Him but he was continually with people of all kinds even against all the social and religious prejudices of that day he fellowshiped with gentile people prostitutes drunkards sick people lepers he was social that was his dna and when he died, it was for everyone else but himself. Well, y'all can sit there and look at me. I, I, I know you're listening, but I can't always read your face. I don't know if I agree with that, Brother Murphy. Well, okay, we go, you go home and study it then and tell me what you come up with. You go visit the old woman that lives behind you that's grouchy and mean and she's lived by herself for 20 years. And tell me how profitable that is. Tell me how much our church has grown because we've isolated ourselves. Tell me how much we've grown because we don't know our neighbors. Tell me how well your family's doing because you've taught them how to live in isolation and not have friendships and relationships. I've taught from day one in Baker, from day one, that I am strongly, vehemently opposed to Pentecostals isolating themselves from the world. You insulate yourself. Think you should have friends outside the church. I I, I apologize. We just need to believe on the Lord and pay our tithes and pray once in a while and we'll be all right. God is... He wasn't satisfied with the angels, man. He's a, he's a relationship fanatic. I'd give anything to spend five minutes with an angel, and he got sick of it years ago. I know most of you think you married one. You did. They're always up in the air harping on something. It's not good that man... Should be alone, alone and isolated. Alone and isolated has never been. These are words that have never been used to describe Christian people. Never. Show me in the Bible. And I write unto the church of Ephesus who has had tremendous success alone and isolated. And I write to the church of Philadelphia, the church of love. You love, so, you love each other so much, and you're alone and isolated, and I'm so proud of you. Alone and isolated has never been associated with the church or with God's people. So I'm going to ask you folks tonight, with everything in me, Would you help me build a front porch on the front of this church, figuratively speaking? As a matter of fact, I hope next spring we're going to redo the front porch out there. I hate those steel handrails. It looks like you're behind bars when you come to church. I never have like that. We want to put some steps so you have access to the front door from any direction you come in on the parking lot. Glad you're excited about it. (laughs) Um, I'm a smart aleck by nature. I can't help it. I try to control it. But anyway, quit shouting and dancing for a few minutes and sit down and let me finish. Um, We need to start. We need to quit saying we care about people and start showing it. So I'm going to ask you to get up tonight. Stand up, stand up. I'm going to ask everybody, if you have the Holy Ghost, if you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and, and I guarantee you every person in this building raised your hand and said, I want to be more like Jesus. This is how we're going to dismiss. Last Wednesday night, I faked y'all out and ran to the back door. That was pretty cool. I'll do that again one of these days. I'm not going to do it tonight. But this is how we're going to dismiss. This is, you're going to, you're going to lay the first brick on the front porch of grace. You listen to me. I'm going to rebuke this spirit in Jesus' name. Well, Brother Murphy, I'm just shy and timid. No, you're not. You're married. At some point, you saw him or her, hopefully, you've been the opposite sex of that, and did something besides grunt, and she said, okay. And it probably didn't happen overnight. How many people are married here tonight because you walked up to a member of the opposite sex and just went, mm, and they went, mm. We're happy together forever. Somewhere, hi, my name is. What is your name? And this is where you really have to come out of your shell right here. I think you're really nice, and I think you're real pretty. Would you go out with me on a date? You did it, man. Think about it. You saw her and freaked out. Got to have her. Man, Shy went out the window. So you can't do it. Can you do it? All right. Don't run out the door. I'm going to ask you tonight in the name of Jesus. You're going to start helping me build a porch on the front of this church. I want Brother Merrill to help me promote this, and Brother Dave, I want you to help me to promote it. Other people that's going to be in this pulpit in the future, I want you to help me promote it. The father of three Mini Coopers. I love that, man. That is the coolest thing on the planet. Y'all know Jason has three Mini Coopers. Never mind. Y'all are just no fun, man. But anyway, this is how we're going to dismiss. I want you to walk around the building, and if you don't know somebody that's here tonight, I want you to walk up to them and introduce yourself to them so you can forever no more be able to say, I don't know them. You got married. Our young people that are in here, you're sitting (laughs) with somebody. You know somebody. You know how to talk to somebody, so here's a chance to do it, so... Walk around the building, go to somebody you don't know them. Don't feel embarrassed. We've got a lot of new people in our church. Get up and go move around. My name is. And shake their hand, and we're going to start caring about each other. And i are going to start tonight.